Okay, so I'm Nick Bircher and this is the Nordic Future Makers podcast. Today's Nordic Future Maker is Martin Lindstrom, a Danish author and Time Magazine Influential 100 honoree. Martin has written a number of best-selling marketing books, including Brandwashed, Biology, Small Data, and Brand Building on the Internet. He's also just released an update of Biology, entitled Biology for a Coronavirus World. So, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please? Well, absolutely. I, I'm a, by birth, I'm a branding guy. I've been working with brands for more than 30 years, which is kind of crazy, but I began very early. I was focused on brands basically since I was 12 years of age, um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But I think Malcolm Gladwell once said that it takes you 10,000 hours to become an expert. So I clocked up my hours very early. And suddenly IT, without knowing it, became sort of by default an expert. Um, and then really what I did was to always combine things uh, in unusual ways. I always learned one thing, that is, if you really want to become the best, uh, you should not focus on one thing, you should focus on two things. And in this case, I basically said, for me to become the number one branding guy in the world, I had to focus on other aspects as well. So I started to combine things. First, I had branding and the internet. Uh, so in 1994, I began writing the first book in the world about that topic. So I combined online and and, uh, and the brands. And then later on, I combined clicks and mortar and that became a big book called Clicks and Mortar. And then I combined the senses. So that became Brand Sense, another book. And then I combined children, then combined neuroscience, and then became neuromarketing, and later on the book Biology. So really what I've done ever since I began my journey was always to combine a new interesting aspect into the conventional world of brands. And through that, I actually believe I've sort of moved the needle a little bit about how we see brands today, just a tiny bit. But I think at the end of the day, hopefully it also has kept me alive. So really what I am doing today is to help companies transform their companies. Brands is a huge part of it, but really there's a lot of other things around it. Uh, So we help organizations to transform themselves. And of course, the brand is the guideline, but there's a lot of other things which we're repairing now, everything from the culture to the structures to the leadership to uh, how it communicates to the product innovation, all that stuff falls under the bucket of brands. Can you believe it? So here we go. It's taken 30 years for me to get to this point. <laughs> and um, so you just said you started at a very early age. So um, you grew up in Denmark, but 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 how early did you start and what started you off? Well, really, I began this journey when I was a huge Lego fan uh, and really... When I'm obsessed with things, it's not normal, I have to say. I'm not sure if I have a, a, a disease or something going on, but I, I really was a huge Lego fan, so much so that I would uh, bicycle to Legoland, to Billund, um, three times or four times a year um, whenever the season was open, just to go around in the theme park for two days. And you know, as obsessive as I was, I managed to persuade the the, the company to to uh, send them uh, send me their um, I think it was their monthly uh, newsletter internal company newsletter 
about what was going on in, in the company, which I think was highly unusual, I have to say, because it talked about staffing problems <laughs> and all sorts of things, remunerations and super innovation and stuff like that. And I was reading everything. I mean, I was 11 years old. I was reading everything. Um, and so I really felt I was working at Lego when I was 11 years of age. Uh, so that kicked off a, a Lego theme park idea in my mind. And that theme park really became my mini Lego land. I worked on it for about a year and it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was my whole, my, my parents' backyard converted into this theme park <laughs> with real canals built in cement. Anyway, it took me a year to open up this theme park. And um, that was really the lowest point of my career because only two people showed up, my mom and my dad. Um, so I was deeply frustrated and uh, guys know how I got the idea, but I went down to a local print office and uh, I persuaded them to sponsor me and they put an ad in the paper and, and the day after or two days after I had 131 visitors, uh, there's wow. just one problem, visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego kind of okay. suing me. <laughs> like they said it was their brand. I said, no, it's my brand. They're really nice about it, I have to say. They offered uh, me to remove the the name Lego in my title of this Legoland, which becomes kind of sort of shallow title then, yeah. um, and then produce a new rubber stamp for me. And then at the same time, they said to me, would you like to, to work for us? And and uh, that stage uh, was a little bit like Villa the Wonka Chocolate Factory story going on here. So I literally started to be an intern at, at Lego and um, and really had contact with him ever since. And so that led me to to some crazy stuff because as I was working there at Lego, I thought, hey, this branding thing is really interesting because that Lego brand, obviously, I was pretty obsessed by it. I wonder if that's the power of brands. So um, I decided to start my own advertising agency uh, while I was doing all this stuff. Uh, so at the age of 12, I opened my agency. And, um, and that agency um, grew and, of course, got Legoland partly as a client. But I really was pretty serious about these things. So I was the first person, I think, in Denmark back then producing a TV commercial for the national television when TV commercial was uh, allowed. And um, that really became my path to understand communication. So I literally started up when I was 12 years of age and I really worked uh, in that kind of that space ever since. Wow. What a fabulous story. So you, you took a, a childhood passion and, and you, you've built a career off, off the back of it. Yeah, crazy, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I, I read your, the first book of yours that I read was Biology. So B-U-Y ology um and i was reading lots of books as research for my own book and the thing that really kind of came out of that was first of all using the science and studying brains and really trying to understand why people did what they did but i really kind of liked this idea of and you talk a lot about experience and there was an example of abercrombie and fitch where it wasn't just about the brand name but it was all these other things around their retail presence, so smell and the darkness and the bags they gave you and the the till experience and, and the whole thing. So you kind of, you open my eyes to this, but this is something that's only grown in importance over the recent, recent years particularly. Well, I think it's Tom Peters once said that you, if you predict 
five minutes ahead, you're able to predict the future. And I think a lot of my work have basically just been five minutes ahead of time. And, and I think biology, in many ways, were that. The book um, was the first book in the world to combine neuroscience with marketing and invent the term neuromarketing. And out of that, biology was really born. It was a book um, based on 2000 brain scans conducted in five markets. We used, among others, fMRI, and then we used two other methodologies, which people are less familiar with. One is called SST and one is called EEG. And the idea was really for me to understand uh, the subconscious behavior in people's minds as they interact with that emotion called, called a brand. And it's really, really hard for people to um, explain why they feel what they feel. And even worse, it's very hard to you know, express emotions if you hear uh, the sound or if you smell a smell or taste something. How do you explain a smell? How do you explain the impact? on the emotional level, a sense of touch have really became evident for me that we do not have the vocabulary. We do not have that ability to express certain degrees of emotions because we're not even aware of them. We also started to analyze the sense of smell and touch and taste and sound and touch and started to analyze the, the power of Abercrombie and Fitz, among others, which really is almost like a nightclub you're going into where the sound was really prominent where the sense of smell, with that smell they're infusing, was prominent um, and started to analyze the impact it had on our brains. Um, and it had a profound impact. I mean, people were certainly lining up because they were buying a nightclub feeling, they buying this feeling of being part of a tribe, the feeling of sex, all that stuff. And all of that we could prove straight through the, the brain scans we were doing. And that really revealed uh, and launched the whole idea of neuromarketing, which I think since then have really taken off across the world. Your new work, Biology for a Coronavirus World, which, first of all, congratulations, because I believe that's been downloaded a lot already. Yeah, about a million people have downloaded so far, which is kind of crazy uh, to, because I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote the book kind of like an afterthought because I was stopped in Sydney. In Australia, because I went to a wedding, which is probably the longest wedding in history. I was stuck there for more than two and a half months after that wedding. And and, um, and then I started to observe people, as I do, through the small data methodology and really wrote this pocketbook, an e-pocketbook, which is free of charge for everyone to download and, and really had a, a huge impact, I have to say, which I didn't expect because literally it was it was written very quickly, of course. Well, um. I'll include the link um, on my on the text for this podcast afterwards. But but I, I was fascinated because it starts talking about the brain science again and the markers, but but it talks about negative somatic markers, which I remember going personally going to Hong Kong and China during SARS the first time round and seeing all the people in face masks then. But I didn't realise the impact that was having on me subconsciously but but you've kind of looked into this a bit more with with your experiences of being in Hong Kong and things like that recently yeah that's right I mean uh, I went to Hong Kong as well and that's really the opening for for the book where I realized that indeed the um the facial mask had a profound impact on my interaction and my emotional engagement with people um it was kind of strange because I've, I've come to Hong Kong for more than 20 years, if not 30 years now. And, and I think it's fair to say that 
I know people very well there. I've been there more than 100 times. And and those people almost had a distance to me once they were wearing those masks. And that was really where it struck me that the, uh, the idea of, of empathy really is determined by facial micro-movements. In fact, there was an experiment done uh, by um, a lady who were together with her little child. And through a session, she was not changing her facial expressions at all while talking to her daughter. And within two minutes, this daughter threw a tantrum and really freaked out because she could not read the mother's emotional connections. Um, and that really is, is in many ways, supporting my claim that uh, empathy is super important. And actually, that was almost wiped away because of people wearing those facial masks in Hong Kong. And I realized that back in January when I was there and sort of said to myself, my God, this really would mean that it would spread across the world as masks become more or less obligatory uh, in airports in different environments. Uh, because really the key connection we have with each other is in the, it's based on empathy, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and remember empathy it's really not something we had when we were as a species and established. Um, it's first happening as the reptile brain has evolved into two other layers. Um, so the empathy issue is not just an empathy issue in terms of the COVID-19 consequences. As I'm writing a book, it's actually going much further. It's going into the space of what about our screens? We're sitting now in front of our screens eight or nine hours every day and once you're done with this, I remember I feel I've been watching the world through a two-way mirror, but I really never participated in it, I felt. It's almost like you're scratching this glass because we feel sort of empty or hollow on the inside after this endless stream of webinars and podcasts and Microsoft Teams sessions. And so I feel that as we are evolving towards a technology-obsessed world, we also slowly are cutting away the foundation for who we are as human beings, and that's the ability to understand and connect with each other. Because we are so overstimulated by the sense of sight and perhaps the sense of sound, but the sense of touch, the sense of smell and taste is almost completely suppressed. And of course, touch more than any other sense is really taking us down a path which I think is super scary. Because you have to remember the largest organ we have on our body is the sense of touch, it's our skin. And um, if we do not touch each other, we actually go into depression. Multiple studies are showing that if I'm not being touched, I literally will go into depression. One study, as I'm referring back to in the biology for coronavirus world, is a study where we um, had rats being touched and fed on a hourly basis and another control group of rats not tossed but still fed and within six weeks not only did the second control group go into depression then not only that they also died almost 50 percent of the rats died and we know today that the fact that we're not tossing people uh, really have a profound impact on us so as we sadly are seeing three or four hundred thousand people now passing away because of uh, COVID-19, there's another consequence which is even bigger and that consequence is the idea of not touching and I think what we will see is an aftermath of a depression which actually will be much more severe than the consequence of the actual virus. Um, 
and that's the reason why I'm, I'm putting this into perspective with you talking about a negative somatic marker because what I find kind of thought-provoking is the fact that in, in, two, in 2004, the swine flu uh, appeared. And the swine flu were impacting uh, and infecting 2 billion people. That's billion with a B. It's not million, right? So 2 billion people were uh, infected by the swine flu and 203,000 people died the first year. Now, I don't remember a frenzy like the one we have experienced now whatsoever. And, and I think, just to put this into perspective, one of the reasons why we see this frenzy is because the world has, from a communication point of view, changed dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. Remember in 2004, Facebook was only basically four years old. And that basically meant that social media was not there to amplify fear. And fear is really what's going on in a, brain, in a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is a fear spot, and it's accumulative. Uh, and it really is like a disease, uh, a chronic disease. Once you're affected by it, it basically never will leave your brain again. And my theory and what I'm writing about in, in that pocketbook is really that we have been affected by the fear of two different sources. One is the Hollywood movies with quotations, uh, with all sorts of different movies, blockbuster movies like the James Bond movies or The Rain or Black Mirror, all of them about viruses spreading the world. It's kind of been like a trailer we've been primed by over lots of time. And then it's been further amplified through the fear mechanism of social media. So when we talk about uh, the situation of today, of course I think it's horrible. Of course I I have huge sympathy with people being affected by it, and a lot of my friends have been affected by it. But the reality is that the balance between what happened with swine flu and now seems like a day and night somehow. And with that, we have discovered in our neuroscience world, it may come down to the idea of a negative somatic marker, as you point out. And a negative somatic marker is it's really a term developed by Antonio Damascus, where he discovered that when something profound happens in your brain, it really creates a negative bookmark, an emotional bookmark. 9-11 is a good example of that. You'll never forget where you were. You'll never forget who you were together with. Never forget even who you called. Well, guess what? COVID-19 is a negative somatic marker. And really what it does, it, it burns itself into your lasting memory. And you really can't get rid of it. And it also has a profound impact of how you're going to behave in the aftermath of this. And that is the impact of COVID-19. And with that, topped with the fear, topped up with the lack of touch and the self-isolation, which really the that whole issue of being determined or being locked inside like a prison has really shattered the world, I think. So I think the aftermath of COVID-19 is going to be much worse than the actual COVID-19 it's just not going to be visible. It's going to be emotional. Okay. But I think from a brand perspective, though, I mean, obviously there's this thing of digital services and digital transformation and all that sort of thing with e-commerce, et cetera, et cetera, needs to continue. But there was a fascinating example you had of Hyundai, which was about how you how a brand understanding the, the fear and the thing that's in people's heads can then adapt the strategy to to kind of adjust and and start to go forward again. 
Yeah, but yes, absolutely. And it, it comes back to the, uh, the philosophy of small data. So remember, small data is seemingly insignificant observations you pick up in people's lives. And they actually can indicate a lot about the future. It may be, I feel, overweight. Uh, and that means that I have a, a need for a weight loss job. And, 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 and what, what we talk about here is that we're all out of balance. And it's a gap between being in balance and out of balance, which really represents the need for a new brand or new product or new service or whatever it may be. So what we uh, are looking for is out of balances and we find them through small data. Um, and Hyundai is a very good example of that because the car company in 2008, when the financial crisis were hitting the world, um, really were one of the very few companies not impacted by the financial crisis. But basically all other American uh, car companies went into panic mode and really concluded that people had no money left and therefore they had to dump the prices and then realized that people didn't buy those cars anyway and that's where they had to be bailed out by the US government. However, one com a car company, Hyundai, the Korean company, in fact did the opposite. They started to search for the small data and realized that um, people actually had the money. They actually had the money but there were afraid of spending the money in case they would lose their job. So what they did instead were to introduce the Hyundai warranty. And really that assurance was very simple. It was that if you lose your job uh, within the year, you're welcome to return the car and they would return the money, no questions asked. And um, what was fascinating about this was in 2008, 2009, Hyundai sales went up double digits, which really was the only car company on planet Earth seeing that growth. And I spoke to the CEO of Hyundai, uh, which was just joined in 2008, about the result of this campaign. And guess what, how many cars were returned? Only five. Uh, and that really comes back to not only understanding the small data and the out of balances in a society, it's also, I think, the essence of the answer which one had to have in mind as you are navigating these rough waters post-COVID-19 to understand that what you see on the surface is not necessarily what you see. There's an underground, an underswelling of things going on at our subconscious level, which actually may hold the key to how to navigate the landscape if you are a company, a brand owner, or producing products or services. Okay. So it's this whole thing of brands need to maybe dig a bit deeper to find the behavioral patterns to really kind of understand what's happening and Absolutely. that strategy can be ad adjusted accordingly. Absolutely. Okay. And in Sweden, where, where I'm based, there's been no lockdown. There've been no face masks and the schools haven't been closed. So does that mean that the the negative marker and the, the fear impact do you think that would be less here than in other countries which have closed and shut down and locked, locked things down? Well, the, the first thing I have to say is that one of the things I always do, we always do in our company, is to spend time on ground with consumers, living with them, to understand their point of view. And we haven't had that opportunity, sadly, to live with consumers in, uh, in Sweden. We've done it in New Zealand, in Australia, in Japan, in Korea in the United States through COVID-19, but not in Sweden. Do me a favor, every one of you guys listening to this program, being based in Sweden, 
please uh, visit me on social media and share with me your experiences as a Swede and the issues you are witnessing. And you're always welcome to submit messages to us also on a private level if there's anything you'd like to share, because I would love to understand the situation of Swedes better than you know, observing it through a BBC world type of news angle, right? Um, so, yeah, do please visit me on, on my social uh, medias. I'm on Twitter um, and I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and you can just search for my name. And, of course, if you want to download the, the book, uh, Biology for a Grown-Us Wise World, just go into Martin Lindstrom, M-A-R-T-I-N-L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M. It's not a Swedish O. OM.com and there there will be a pop-up appearing and you can download the book free of charge. Perfect. Okay. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Well, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure to um, to have a conversation with you. And well, listen, okay. good luck to all of you guys in Scandinavia. I'm sure you will get out on the other end um, even better, even stronger, because I think we learned a lot. And one of the things we learned is that we probably have to um, stimulate our sense of empathy and the sense of touch much more. And I think this has been a pretty profound lesson to get us to realise that. Thank you, Martin. Pleasure. And for everyone else, I think Martin is another example of a Nordic future maker. So someone who's pushing forward our understanding of how people are receiving and responding to marketing and advertising and everything else. So I hope you have enjoyed the podcast. I hope you will subscribe to the podcast and I hope you will listen again in the future. Bye.